look at Russia's capabilities, especially on the counterintelligence front, great concern for insider threats, meaning trying to weed out those kinds of humans or cyber that could be utilized by uh, the Russian FSB. Welcome to Applied Geopolitics, the podcast series of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at Rain. I'm your host, Roger Baker. Geopolitical intelligence and analysis is often seen as best suited for broad strategic outlooks, making it particularly useful for long-term planning and national security priorities. But even as businesses and organizations increasingly recognize the impact of geopolitical events on their international and even national operations, their internal information and intelligence cycles are often much shorter and more tactical. It's vital for those managing risk to balance between the strategic context and the tactical application. I'm joined today by Fred Burton, the Executive Director at the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence, someone who has both seen the need for and helped to bridge this gap. Fred, thanks for joining me today. Roger, it's my pleasure. I miss you guys. Uh, I really, really valued my time greatly at Stratfor. Well, it's good to have you back. Good to be talking with you. And I know uh, you're, you're doing a lot of interesting things over there at, at Ontic. I, I guess to begin with, Fred, what's your observation after um, se- several years in the business of the, the ability of businesses to be able to see in both that strategic and that tactical space, that tactical range uh, in which they normally operate? Well, Roger, I think it's a great question, and I don't think there's anybody that does it any better than uh, what uh, you folks do at Rain when it comes to looking over the horizon. It's never been more critical than today when you start looking at just not only the geopolitics of the world, which uh, you know so well, uh, but uh, companies are really struggling with trying to make sense of the threat landscape. I I hear that every day. There, there's so much chatter there's so much social media, Roger. Uh, there's so much confusion, and of course, uh, you know the world uh, is highly complex. So making sense of that for businesses uh, is 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 challenging. When 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 we look at it, obviously, you know, from from my background, geopolitics uh, runs in these these big sweeps, right? I like to work in ten year and twenty year blocks. Um, and and think about what's the shape of the world and how to how do world systems work and things of that sort and, and that's that's the real real fun and interesting components of it. But obviously, uh, you know, a, a ten year forecast of the shift in the world, uh, you know, well, it has some impact on the ways in which organizations have to look at risk and opportunity. Inherently, they work in a day-to-day, minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour pattern. And so that that translation element of bringing it back down, I know traditionally you've worked primarily more along the physical security threats uh, to, to organizations. Um, how do you see the, the value of understanding that broader geopolitical context on predicting patterns in tactical security threats? I think it's uh, one of the more difficult problems for companies to struggle with. Uh, let's face it, uh, most organizations, your Fortune 1000s, are living quarter to quarter, and they're trying to make their numbers and so forth. So it's very, very difficult to try to get people to look over the horizon and, and to see around corners. But 
you know, that bridging between the tactical and the strategic is, is something that I think that historically uh, Stratfor has always done well with, uh, trying to make sense of uh, the tactical and the strategic. And, but the gaps there, Roger, I think still exist. And I think companies do have problems with trying to make sense of those intelligence gaps or really not knowing how to bridge the tactical and the strategic. And uh, I think that with that brings uh, a lot of opportunity for companies or third-party providers. And it also brings, uh, you know, like unique possibilities for not only geopolitical analysts inside of companies, but what I see every day is the growing trend of protective intelligence analysts inside of the Fortune 500s. Yeah, one of the things I've been thinking about in, in trying to look at this, I go back to you know a really um, vivid example for me, and that is back around 2000, 2001, um, I was doing a lot of work on Southeast Asia, right? And of course, that's where Abu Sayyaf starts to ramp up their activity um, in the Philippines. And at the time, it was seen as uh, a, a really significant potential threat that was emerging. And certainly on a, on a localized level, there were some real challenges there, right? This was Al-Qaeda's branch in Southeast Asia. There were a lot of concerns thinking forward of what does this mean for business operations uh, in Southeast Asia if Al-Qaeda is about to move from the Middle East and Central Asia and now spread throughout um this new region of the world throughout Southeast Asia and, and, and really take advantage of the large populations, um, the large uh, Muslim populations within those geographies and push back against international business, um, U.S. relations, foreign relations within the area. And, and so we did a lot of work on trying to put it within its strategic context at the same time that, that we were tracking the tactical implications of of Abu Sayyaf, you know, as it was kidnapping people, holding people for ransom, um, uh, uh, running attacks uh, against um, businesses or against governments or against NGOs that were operating within the region. And one of the things we we looked at, though, from that broader geopolitical perspective is, one, what does it take for um, terrorist groups or militant groups to truly be able to take hold within a particular geography um, and become enmeshed in that geography and in that population such that they exert a systemic threat rather than a, a periodic tactical threat. And two, what were the conditions within that region, for example, that would make them more or less susceptible to accepting the, the philosophy of something like an Al-Qaeda with a much more extreme um, you know, uh, uh, view of particular aspects of, of Islamic militancy. And we came to the conclusion that, in fact, despite the concerns, and particularly right after 9-11, the very strong concerns by the United States that the next front in the war on terror would be Southeast Asia, that, in fact, the, the, the social, political, cultural conditions didn't lend to that same enmeshed um, uh, societal components that would allow it to uh, develop in the same way that, for example, we saw later in uh, central Iraq or in Syria or or as we had seen earlier in parts of Afghanistan. 
And so we were able to use that that strategic framing to better understand the the long and short term threats from groups like Abu Sayyaf or JI or things like that um, and help to bridge that space between how do you understand the day to day tactical threat from these groups, which was very real, but also to understand that the long term strategic risk was actually relatively low. Yeah, that's a fascinating piece of analytical work, and I vividly recall the efforts that uh, you undertook for that, Roger, and I think that that's part of the challenge. I mean, look, uh, I hear it every day, uh, corporate security departments, um, the C-suite is inundated with uh, tactical alerts, explosion here, kidnapping there, whatever, crime in Mexico. Uh, Making sense of that and putting it in the business landscape, I think, is something that we all try to do. And I think that there are some some companies that do it better than others. And and obviously, uh, Stratfor Rain is at the top of its game when it comes to that. Uh, But you touched on something that I I get back to. I still believe, Roger, and I know you and I I have had many, many coffees and, and early morning discussions about this. Bridging that gap between strategic and tactical is something that uh, companies really have a hard time trying to figure out, meaning what's important. And to your point, uh, explosions, terrorist-related activity in the Philippines or, or wherever, uh, you know, the withdrawal of um, U.S. forces and the closing of the embassy in, in Kabul, you know, what does that mean? And how do business interpret that? And as we all know, uh, there's a lot of opportunities in some of these areas, um, and companies struggle with threat assessments and trying to figure out what is the probability of violence or what is that impact from a risk management perspective to conducting operations in an Afghanistan today. Uh, or uh, let's, let's look at the sticky wicket of what's unfolding with uh, Russia where we still have uh, a fair amount of Western business still operating there. Right. You know, you focused a lot on the the idea of protective intelligence, which, of course, brings us down to a very uh, uh, often a singular uh, uh, individual. So bringing us down to the really pointy end of this. Um, how do how do you uh, suggest or how have you in the past integrated that that broader contextual uh, uh, element of looking at particular places, like Russia, for example. You know, that we can talk about the threats inside Russia, but clearly Russia has demonstrated capabilities outside Russia. And, and they, they see themselves in a, in a almost existential standoff with the West. And the West also then translates into business oper- businesses um, anything that ultimately supports the economic or military capacity of the West. So how do you or how have you worked to integrate that strategic framework with then what goes on as you bring it down all the way to, say, that very focused lens of protective intelligence? I think companies today, or at least the ones that I talk to in the Fortune 500 space, Roger, uh, have really focused on geopolitics and actually stood up core groups inside of their corporate security departments to just focus on that, to try to help the C-suite, the CEO, uh, the chief legal counsel make sense of the threat landscape in 
whatever operational environment that they're in. Uh, look, when Russia uh, invaded Ukraine, uh, there was a huge impact to U.S. business in just trying to locate and identify employees, trying to figure out how to get them out if they're uh, wanting to leave from a tactical perspective. Some had to close down operations. Others were trying to make sense of, do I close down operations? So that really has created, I think, a vacuum which has been filled by uh, lots of companies that uh, recognize the need for understanding the geopolitics and trying to look out over the horizon. Because uh, as you and I both know, uh, their second and third order uh, magnitude of impact of these operations. And I mean, let's take, for example, uh, Ukraine and some of the ramifications of just food shortages as a result of that. And I think companies are really starting to really focus on that, and they do it through a, a good number of internal analytical capabilities uh, augmented mightily by uh, third-party providers and partners to try to help them make sense of that landscape. And, you know, for me, it's really fascinating as, as um, we think about this, Roger. I mean, look now with... Uh, uh, Putin's nuclear saber rattling and the, the call up of the reserves and so forth and the exit of all the, the young males just trying to get the heck out of Dodge now uh, or Russia. And uh, companies were starting to uh, emerge and go back into Ukraine. So these are tough decisions that uh, Fortune 500s in the West struggle with today uh, because at the end of the day, there's risk mitigation, there's liability. Uh, these kinds of decisions uh, aren't taken lightly anymore, uh, and and certainly that's developed in our post nine eleven framework that that you touched on earlier. So let's let's take take this discussion on Russia a little bit further and and kind of op open open up the, the the talk a little bit here. Um, you know, you you are uh, a, a an individual who has. Uh, bridged the cold war to the post cold war and now to the to the the new current dynamics in russia you know from from your experience and from your perspective and your observations you know what what are the things that that you would be on the lookout for as we're watching this evolution of the russian relationship with the west yeah it's a great question uh one of the benefits of uh, air quotes being older roger is uh you do have a little bit of uh, historical perspective, and uh, I, I certainly know that you're a student of history as well. I think when you look at uh, you know Russia's uh, capabilities, especially on the counterintelligence front, you know one of the things that uh, we hear all the time at our Center for Protective Intelligence is the great concern for insider threats, meaning trying to weed out uh, those kinds of persons, whether it be humans or cyber, uh, that could be utilized by uh, the Russian FSB uh, as um, sources inside of Western companies, uh, especially those uh, attached in some component to uh, the uh, war efforts. Um, and look, it would be hard-pressed not to find a company today that's uh, not engaged in some degree of work for the U.S. government. So uh, I think that that has been almost a persistent theme, Roger, that I've watched since uh, I first got in this business in the in the 80s, that, you know, old habits die hard, and there's still that desire to steal intellectual property, you know, the cyber threats, 
the human dynamic involved with that, uh, trying to get persons inside, uh, and so forth. Uh, I don't see that ending, and in fact, uh, I think as the West continues to ratchet down on Russia, uh, that that's only going to increase from uh, that foreign counterintelligence cap capability from the Russian services. Uh, obviously, you're not um, active in the government anymore and things of that sort. But do, do you see, you know, there's there's a lot of talk because of the, 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 the pushback against the Russian forces, the losses on the ground, the clear intelligence failures at the beginning of the Ukraine operation by the Russians. Um, there's been a lot of talk about, uh, well, this, this shows that Russian, not only is the Russian military weak, Russian intelligence is weak, Russian intelligence is poor. Are you seeing signs of a degradation of the capabilities of Russian intelligence and counterintelligence? Or, or are you still just as concerned as before? I think it's a very interesting question. I think uh, that the Russians have always surprised us with their intelligence-related capabilities and Let's not forget uh, they are very capable of leveraging their liaison, their liaison counterparts with uh, friendly, air quote, friendly nation states to Russia to be able to augment that. Having said that, let's not lose sight of the fact that uh, the West capabilities, Five Eyes uh, combined, uh, when they laser focus on a target, they're pretty darn good at it. Uh, and... Um, Today, uh, clearly, that um, is at the top notch from a collection standpoint, but uh, the Russians have always surprised us from the intelligence uh, capabilities, uh, especially with long-term plants and infiltrations into the U.S. government space. And um, I, I, know, I know that uh, companies are just worried about what Putin's next moves might be uh, when it comes to things like that. Uh, look, they, it's, it's hard-pressed to, to reach out and touch certain U.S. government targets at times, but multinational corporations uh, uh, are in many ways soft targets uh, around the world when it comes to just that FCI uh, effort and uh, the, cyber, the cyber sphere. Yeah, and we've been looking, you know, as you mentioned earlier, there's this flood of uh... Uh, uh, young Russians leaving, trying to avoid the draft, um, uh, heading out to the border crossings in Georgia and, and in the Kazakhstan and trying to get out of Russia. Um, what sort of potential risk might that bring? I mean, on the one hand, one could argue that this provides an opportunity for Russian intelligence to be able to uh, place people by putting them in those flows and being able to track. On the other hand, there's also the, the potential risk that uh, as you have more of these people moving abroad, that Russian intelligence services may decide to try to target those individuals or to target um, groups or organizations that are helping or facilitating the, the exfiltration of Russians out of Russia. Are you seeing a potential uh, risk to arise in external activities by Russian intelligence? now that we see this sort of uh, rapid outflow uh, of young military-age Russians? It certainly gives the Russian FSB cover for action to be able to take advantage of that uh, if they're trying to place assets into the West, uh, certainly. And obviously, uh, just from a sheer geography perspective, uh, you know, the European continent would be the most probable locations for those to occur. 
I, I, I'm reasonably confident that, uh, especially in our post 9-11 world, that uh, our, our robust uh, national agency record checks on visa applicants coming to the United States is, is pretty good when it comes to ferreting out uh, potential hostile threats. I would, I would look more towards, you know, the operating environments of, of Europe, uh, specifically like the UK and so forth, uh, because uh, Russia has historically been able to, to reach out and conduct operations on uh, British soil. When you look around, um, obviously we've got the, the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Um, the, the Middle East crisis is getting less attention, but it doesn't mean that things have simply disappeared there. There's the growing um, uh, U.S.-China strategic competition and the implications around there. Uh, wh what are some of the places that, that, that you all are raising as areas to have heightened awareness and heightened alert? And I know you mentioned cyber, and we'll, we'll come to that back to that in a minute. But from the physical um, security dynamic, where are you seeing these, these global stresses start to... Um, uh, 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 really focal down on or the places that you see as emerging that are maybe not getting the attention that probably should be there? Roger, what we hear, uh, it, it's really interesting to me just from the standpoint of um, having been born and raised and grown up in the 60s and the 70s, there's, there's tremendous concern by uh, U.S.-based uh, multinational corporations of domestic crime and violence, meaning uh, no city has been untouched by that. Uh, there's concern for, especially those with retail storefronts, um, with uh, the uh, not only crime, the defund movement, the lack of law enforcement response, just general increase in response times here in the United States and, and so forth. And then as you look abroad, uh, we kind of touched on it briefly. I see more and more uh, interest in the geopolitics of the world by the C-suite, uh, which really began with the pandemic. Uh, and then uh, certainly Russia's invasion of Ukraine caused companies to try to sit back and say, what's next? Meaning, how do I make sense of either it's the South China Sea, which you know is something that you are certainly one of the foremost experts in, uh, as well as um, what is Israel going to do with Iran and vice versa? What does it mean to us? We've got operations in Israel and so forth. Uh, or what's that ramification of uh, potential disruption of military actions in the South China Sea? How does that affect our supply chain? So literally, I hear every day, Roger, companies are all over the map. Uh, those with home offices inside the United States, there's been almost a tier one kind of collection effort of what can we do to get our handle around the scope of crime in and around our facilities on up to the global landscape. So uh, this is why it's never been a more interesting and fascinating time uh, to be in this industry from, from my perspective. Uh, but um, I think it was our, our old mentor that, that once said, Dr. Friedman, that uh, you know, the world is a dangerous place and, and certainly things haven't changed. Yeah, I guess finally, um, you know, obviously there's, there's this cyber question, right? Everybody's uh, looking at that. There's so much uh, information movement. You know, you have anything in the cyberspace now covers um, information, misinformation, and disinformation. It covers uh, espionage and industrial espionage. 
Uh, it covers potential um, for sabotage or, or physical attack vectors, um, not to mention all of the, the, the direct impacts on, on personal um, uh, information security or personal uh, security. Do you see, and this is, a, this is kind of a bit of an odd question, do you see that, that cyber um, as its own unique domain, or do you see it as simply an extension of these types of risks and threats and challenges that we've seen uh, you know, th throughout history just d evolving and developing with a new set of technologies? It's really an interesting question and one that we've written a fair amount about, Roger, and it's the physical cyber convergence. Uh, we see more and more companies merging uh, those two spaces, which were traditionally siloed operations between physical security uh, to cyber. Now we're seeing that hybrid merging aspect uh, with fusion center operations where if you walk into a Fortune 50's uh, GSOC or Fusion Center today, it looks like something right out of uh, what you would see inside the Beltway at a U.S. government, where signals are being captured uh, from the cyberspace on into the physical security realm, notifications to employees, banks of TV screens trying to keep track of employees around the globe, and the rapid notification of staff as to events that take place. To me, the fascinating part from that, Roger, is what you do is overlaying the geopolitical aspect of that onto that to have another cloud above that and trying to make sense of what all this means, I think, is a daunting challenge, which is why I see more and more companies either embedding intelligence analysts and operations or outsourcing those operations um, to third-party providers. Well, Fred, a lot more we can talk about this, uh, obviously, and I certainly want to get a time to, uh, maybe we'll schedule some time just to uh, chat about old stories as well, because I think that would be, uh, we'll call them case studies, and that, that will give them, give them an added value. But uh, I, I really want to thank you for, for being here today, taking the time to, to join me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Roger. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks a lot. And thank you all for listening. Uh, we've been talking today with Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. If you'd like to learn more about geopolitical analysis or how to bridge that gap between the strategic and the tactical when it comes to your international operations, visit rainnetwork.com and sign up for alerts and information from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at Rain. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Roger Baker. Thanks for listening.